Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Charlie Higson, interviewed live by presenter Steph McGovern at the 2022 Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining discussion with this acclaimed actor, author and comedian. Your, what? How many years has it been since you've done an adult thriller? Is it? 25 years. 25 years and you're back. I'm back. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, looking younger than ever. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever gets you through the night, tell, tell us a bit about it for those who haven't read it. Well, it's, um, yeah, it's a return to crime writing for me after a long time. Um, I wrote these four crime books in the early 90s. Uh, and then other things took over, like having kids and making TV programs. But I've always loved crime writing. Um, and actually what I've realised is, you know, I come to festivals like this and there's all these crime writers here and they're talking about all these other great crime writers. And I don't know who any of them are. Um, <laughs> apologies to any here. Because what I've realised is I love crime writing, but I love crime writing that's about criminals. And from the criminal point of view, much more than I like police procedurals and detectives. I like crime writing that really gets inside the mind of, of a screwed up person, really. So, you know, I love the likes of Patricia Highsmith and a lot of the great American pulp writers in, in the 40s, 50s, 60s who would, would be writing about criminals, psychopaths, bank robbers, whatever. And, and I just love that kind of getting inside the mind of someone like that. Um, and the problem with, for me, with um, the police procedural type thing and the detective type thing is because you've got to sort of, and I'm being, this is very broad, but, but you've got to kind of keep the criminal hidden, whoever did it. So you can't, um, you can't always really get inside <laughs> their mind of, of why they did it. And obviously the detective can work that out, but yes. Yeah, so that's a. <coughs> I'm sorry. I'm supposed to be saying what this book's about. <laughs> um, so I, uh, the book is is about a um, a a good-looking young wealthy tech mogul, a uh, British guy called Julian Hepworth, who has built himself this huge um, pad on Corfu this big private estate, and um, he's, well, it's a hobby, whatever. He runs a girls' tennis team, and they stay on the compound. And as we learn through the book, he's essentially running a personal cult there, and he's abusing these young girls, and they can't get away from his clutches. And so our hero in the book, who's um, calling himself McIntyre in this book, He's undercover. His job is to help people out of tricky situations with the minimum of fuss. And he's been hired by the father of one of the girls to try and get his his young daughter out from under Hepworth and out of the compound. <clears throat> and 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 what happens is 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 McIntyre turns up and he's he's not the type who's going to 
go in in a tank with a huge machine gun and blast everyone away because he would instantly be arrested and that would be the end of his career. Uh, so it's not like the movies. Um, so he tries to be discreet and what he works out is that there are various factions on the island and if he plays them off against each other he can use them to do the violence and the dirty work for him. So there's a group of Albanian gangsters, there's a group of uh, Greek uh, drug dealers, um, there's Hepworth's own security team. Um, so there's all these types and Hep uh, McIntyre has a a little slightly eccentric team of people who help him out and, and they work out how to play all these different elements off each other and um, well I won't tell you what happens at the end <laughs> <laughs> So come on, tell me where did this idea then come from and, and why did you want to do adult Well it's been brewing it's been brewing for 25 years um, I loved uh, love crime books and that's all why I wanted to write and, and, and I, I, as I say I wrote four in the 90s and it, it was before the crime boom had boomed um, and back then, crime was considered, you know, a little bit of a, well, that's a slightly grubby genre thing. And I, you know, because I said to my original publisher, which was Penguin, um, Hamish Hamilton, you know, it's, it, we were talking about how to market it and what the jacket would look like. And I said, well, you know, obviously, it's a crime, but they said, oh, no, 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 we can't, we can't market it as that. I think, well, <laughs> but that's what it is. Um, so it was, it was sort of, they, they were sort of marketed as sort of, I suppose slightly in the sort of Ian Banks world um, and, but, but what was really interesting the first, first event I did for my first book um, I did a literary festival in Dartington and I was on a panel with Peter James <coughs> who at the time was kind of king of horror writing mm. um, and horror then was, was, was quite a big deal and, and I suppose there was that sort of slight crossover between thrillers and horror with, with things like Thomas Harris with the Silence of the Lambs type of books, which are, they're half horror and they're half thriller. Um, and so it, there was all this stuff sort of swinging about. And, you know, Peter James was talking about horror and his love of horror. And um, a couple of years later, the horror just disappeared. The bottom completely fell out of it. And Peter James moved over to crime writing and reinvented himself as one of our, our leading crime writers. And that's kind of what happened through the 90s. Um, and, and I sort of wasn't able to write a book, and I was very frustrated, thinking, God, if only, if only I could be part of the crime boom. But luckily I was part of a comedy boom, so that wasn't, <laughs> wasn't too bad. But I did have all these ideas that I, was, that I was kind of storing up over the years, bits and pieces from here and there. Um, but I did, so I did the, a lot of the TV comedy and then I got into writing for kids. I wrote a series of young James Bond books. I've got three boys, so it was kind of like the ideal job, job for me. And then I wrote for teenagers a horror series called The Enemy. And, but, but all through that period, I, I had these kind of ideas mucking about. But if you're going to write a book, it's really important that you have a really good, strong central driving idea. Um, it can be as simple as you've got the most extraordinary character or an amazing incident, but if, if you need a sort of idea of, bang, that's what the book is, a kind of the, the elevator pitch, as it were. Because yeah. I remember when I was writing 
working on my fourth book back in back in the day. I'd I started a couple of books because I had bits and pieces, but they weren't really going anywhere because I didn't really have that strong central idea. And then one night I was in the bath, which is where I do most of my writing. Because <laughs> uh, you, you need that sort of somewhere to free your mind up so that ideas can come to you. Because what you don't want to do is sit down at the computer and think, I've got to write now, but what do I write? I've got no ideas. So you sit and think in the bath? Yeah, and kind of just drift and, and let things come to you. I also, I, I do a lot of walking and that's a very good way also. Yeah. How long are you baths? Long. Yeah. Long. I went really hot so that you can only just get in. <laughs> and then by the time you start to feel cold, you get out. And, and, and if, you, if you're lucky, you'll have come up with the idea for a novel. <laughs> and I did in, in this particular bath. I had the idea, I thought, okay, what, what if uh, somebody kills someone else in the first chapter and they spend the rest of the book trying to get rid of the body? I thought, yes, that is an idea. And around that, you can do whatever you like. You can put as many characters in and uh, diversions and, and whatever, as long as you've got that central idea that, that's driving the book. Um, and that became my fourth book, which is called Getting Rid of Mr. Kitchen. Um, and my problem was, because I've been really lucky to have worked in lots of different fields and done lots of different writing. So I've done, I've written comedy, I've written drama, I've written fantasy stuff for TV, I've written films and radio and books, and I've written for teenagers and I've written for kids and, and younger kids. And it's great because you're constantly kind of reinventing and revitalising what you do. Um, and, and what tends to happen, uh, and I think it probably would be the same for, for most writers, is you have sort of an antennae and they get tuned into something. So when I was doing the Vast show, I would always, I would be sort of in tune for like funny, interesting characters or funny, interesting ideas for sketches, and that's what you pick up on. Mm. And the other stuff out there that might have fed into a novel, you kind of ignore because you don't have the mental space. Um, so my adult crime writing antennae were not, were not that tuned, but occasionally bits and pieces would come in. And I found we hit lockdown. Um, there was no TV work to be done. Uh, my three boys all, all are now in their 20s, so I, I'd stopped writing for, for younger people. Um, and it seemed like the ideal opportunity to go back and write an adult book. And so I had all these ideas. And I had ideas for different characters. I knew I wanted to write a book on Corfu. We used to go there a lot. And I'll tell you, in fact, where one of the, one of the ideas came from, which, which made it into the book. We were on a, a family holiday in Corfu, and we chartered a catamaran for the day. And this young couple um, took us around. You know, they were in charge of the boat, and we sailed down the Straits of Corfu between Corfu and Albania. And they pointed up to the right, and they said, look, up there, and there was a huge, luxurious estate with a, you know, a reasonably, well, 20th century built. Big house, and swimming pool, and terraces down to a private harbor and everything. And they said, that's the Rothschild's estate. And it's a very famous estate. And then they pointed up to, the, to where the swimming pool was, and there was a, you could just see a blonde woman with a big hat. And I said, that's Joanna Lumley. 
<laughs> I don't know if it was true. <laughs> but it was quite exciting. I thought, yes, that's, I quite like that world. That's an interesting world to write about. And what cemented it for me was they then pointed over to the other coast, to Albania. And at the time, the, the coast of Albania on there was very barren. It had been stripped of all its trees and vegetation and not looked after. It was kind of brown and dusty and quite grim, except for this one quite long stretch of very lush green planting with lots of trees and shrubs. And they said, yes, that's because the Rothschilds own that bit of land. They bought it so that they weren't overlooked. Whoa. <laughs> And I thought, you know, that is that is wealth. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're controlling the whole environment even there. So as I say, I really wanted to write something set in an estate like that, um, yeah. and that kind of world. And so that's so I thought, okay, for my book, I've got that. That's where the villain's going to be, in a sort of Bond villains there. Yeah. And then I had all these other characters and ideas, and I wasn't sure how to put them all in. Um, and as I, say, I, 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 as I say, I came up with the idea of blowing them off against the shoulder. It wasn't my idea at all. It's a classic crime trope, which probably goes back to Red Harvest yeah. by Dashiell Hammett, which is... If you, by the way, if you've not, any of you have not read Dashiell Hammett, you, you really should, as the sort of... the great-grandfather of American crime, and came up really with the idea of the private, the private detective as a character he created with the continental operative. Um, you never know his name, but he, it, it's a sort of Pinkerton-style arrangement that he, that he works for. And Red Harvest is a fantastic book where he goes into this uh, small American town and realises it's incredibly corrupt. There's a corrupt police force, there's a corrupt local politicians, there is a, a gang of um, bootleggers, there's a gang who run the gambling, and there's all these different elements and they're all vying for power, and he does what I have my guy in the book does. He sets them off against each other, so they all start shooting each other and killing each other so that he can do what he has to do in the town. Um, and that's a plot that's been used and reused so many times. Um, Kurosawa nicked it for one of his fantastic samurai films, Yojimbo, with the great Toshiro Mifune, where he turns up as a samurai and exactly the same time, which... Um, Sergioni, Sergio Leone then nicked and turned into Fistful of Dollars, um, and then I nicked it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's clearly worked. Um, you mentioned uh, McIntyre, your main character, and you said about wanting to bring all these other characters. That's what I loved about it. There are so many colourful characters in there, aren't there? And yeah, and it's it's the, the comedy really comes through as well as obviously the you know the, the darker worlds that are going on there. Is that, was that always the plan, like, to...? Well, well yeah, I mean, because I, I love great characters and writing about characters, and, and making the fast show was such fantastic schooling for learning how to do that, to set a character up quickly, how they talk, what their sort of key characteristics are. Um, and, 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 yes, and because I had all these characters, it was a chance to, to shove them all into the, into the book. Um, there were even more in earlier drafts, but my editor kept saying... There's just too many <laughs> And I hate that in a book where it's like, and then Brian came into the room wearing a strange hat. You think, oh, which, which one is Brian in Ghana? You, yeah. You're flipping back, yeah. trying to find who the, who the flipping heck Brian, Brian is. Um, so, it, but yes, and, I, and 
the, each chapter is kind of told from the point of view of a different character. Um, so that, you, you know, and, and what I love is when each character doesn't really know what the other characters are doing, so, but, but you're seeing what they see, and I, I do love that as, yeah. a, as a technique. And there's quite a lot of controversial topics in there as well, aren't there, in terms of obviously, you know, mentioned the abuse. Yes. Uh, there's also a lot of flat earther in there, isn't there, as well, and <laughs> so many drugs and... Yes, I mean, in the end, I think the, the book is, it might possibly be a political book, I don't want to put anyone off. <laughs> um, in many ways, it's about the corruption that capitalism causes um, and that money causes. And the, the, the central guy, Julian Hepworth, uses his power and his money and his perceived power and his perceived money to control everyone around him. And, you know, in some ways, you know, the abuse of, of relatively... Help, helpless people is, is, is how capitalism kind of thrives um, and it's about all the the fallout from that and the way that the powers that be can maintain their control and their power it's quite interesting my, two of my boys are very political and there's so much stuff around touted usually pushed by the more right wing elements of the press how all the problems in the modern world are to do with things like Twitter and TikTok and um, snowflakes. And my <laughs> eldest boy, they talked about they talked to him about this recently, and he said, "It's always the way that the old way of the old actual enemy always makes us." tries to make us believe that the problem is this new thing. But the problem is always the same old thing. It's, it's money and power being mm. held in the hands of few people and the wrong people. And it's in their interests to make you think, oh, <coughs> oh yes, the, this turmoil and everything that's going on is to do with TikTok. It's not. It's to do with people like Epworth in my book. And... And, and so that and so I explore that through the book. I mean, I don't want it to sound too heavy. It's not. No, it's really you know, That stuff is in there. You know, it is. It is a, an exciting adventure thing. But it, it is. It is about the poison and the corruption that has spread from the top and the lies that they propagate. And, and I'm I'm really interested in the, in, in conspiracy theories. Yeah. Um, and. And, and you know, you scratch the surface and you dig deeper in them, and you realise that you know there's a, there's a deeper problem going on. But the likes of Donald Trump, it's in their interest to spread these conspiracy theories, to spread the theory, the the whole QAnon theory that the Democrats are keeping the children locked up underneath a pizza parlour in order to steal adrenochrome from their adrenal glands and sexually abuse them, and. Um, and you think, no, that's not the problem. The problem is Donald Trump is an extremely wealthy capitalist and he's using his money to, to, to keep power. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, cover it so much in it. Is, there, is this now, could you, could you write another book on this? Are you thinking you might... Well, I was, I mean, I've really enjoyed coming back and writing for adults again. And inevitably, in the crime world, 
what people are always looking for is a franchise, a series, or whatever. You keep doing more and more of them. And, you know, it's amazing seeing the, the talks here with, you know, the likes of Michael Connolly, who's written over 30 books, I think he said. And, you know, the energy, and he's still doing it. You know, he still loves it, obviously. And you know, it's... And I was talking to um, Mick Herring, who I met recently, um, at... He's here, but I met him at another, another difference. And I asked him, you know, how long did it take before you became Mick Herring with the, with the super successful, best-selling um, Slow Horses series? And he said it was around about book four, book five. And he was dropped by his publisher after his first book in the UK. Luckily, his American publisher kept him on. Um, and, and he built that up, but you know, you, you, it's it's very hard to sell any book. Um, so the idea, you know, if you've got a, well, it works fantastically well, obviously, for a police procedural series or or detective series. They come back; it's a new case in each book. And my God, there are a lot of. I didn't. Well, I knew there was a lot of crime books, but I didn't realise quite how they were. And and you know, most of them are hugely successful. But, you know, uh, it, what's brought it home to me is there, there are probably um, more detective inspectors have been created by writers at this festival than actually exist within the British police force. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah, I was thinking, you know, I, I think the idea of McIntyre is, is quite fun. He's kind of sort of like an anti-Bond. He's very... He keeps himself very much in the background. He doesn't have an amazing, colourful past. He's just an ordinary guy who wants to help people get things done, uh, and is using his brain rather than than firepower. Yeah. And 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 yes, I was thinking, yes, it might be the rest of another book. And I came up on Friday and I had a uh, the, my publishers were having a, a lunch, and I was sitting next to my editor, and he said, "So, do you think you might want to do another one, Charlie?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Okay." Then. So uh, I took that as a green light. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, I know a lot of people come to these festivals for tips on how to be a writer and how to get published. Have lunch with a publisher, sit next to an agent, get them drunk. And uh, when they say, would you like to write a book? Say yes. <laughs> Can I um, ask you about your, because obviously you've, you've, you've mentioned some of the jobs you've had, you've had such an amazing career, you started writing pretty young didn't you, is it at the age of 10 you started? I did, yes, I mean you know back in those days, back in the 60s, we had, uh, well eventually we had three TV channels and kids TV was like an hour yeah. after school, no videos, um, no internet, no phone. You did have to make your own entertainment, and, and I worked out that I really, I got really hooked on the idea of, of making up, uh, making up stories, um, telling stories. You take a, a piece of paper, a biro, and you make those funny squiggly marks of it, and you've created characters that didn't exist before. They can walk around and make you laugh and cry, and you can build towns and cities and whole universes. I love that sort of magic of writing, the creativity of it. And, you know, when I started, I basically just copied any book that I liked reading. And then, as I got a little bit older as a teenager, I started writing lots of fantasy, which is perfect for a teenager to write because you have no experience of the world. You know, I didn't know what it was like for someone to go 
and work in a normal job, but I could make up someone with a sword and access to magic, riding around on a horse, that's quite easy. <laughs> um, and then in, at university, a friend of mine turned me on to, to, to crime fiction, and I, I, I sort of never looked back. Yeah. And you went to uni with Paul Whitehouse. I well. did, yes. I met him yeah. in, in 1977 in Norwich. And we were, we were both punks. <laughs> I was a, quite a middle-class punk. <laughs> he was more of a working-class punk. And, you know, back then, there weren't many other people who had short hair and straight trousers. It's funny, I said this to my... Um, I talked to my kids about this. I said, you know, I, I just looked for whoever else at the university had straight trousers and, 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 and weren't wearing flared jeans. And they were amazed. They said, well, well, surely everybody had straight trousers. That's what trousers are. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't grasp this concept that in the 70s, everybody had flared trousers of some sort. And it was quite a big thing. You know, you would be beaten up for walking down the street wearing straight trousers. Um, so, you know, those, those like-minded people at universities kind of gravitated towards each other. And, and, and Paul had... He's got some great pictures of when he did have huge flares and long, um, a long curly perm. Did he? In, in the mid-70s, before he reinvented himself as, as a punk, cut, cut his hair off and, and, and bought some straight jeans. So, so yes, there was a whole group of us kind of gravitated together. He, he, was, a, he was a very good guitarist, actually, and obviously um, a very good singer. People have seen him do that, although I was a singer in band. In the band. Yes, yeah, so you formed a band. We did. We formed a punk band in, in Norwich. We were a Norwich-based student punk band. <laughs> Rock and roll. Um, and we were called the Right Hand Lovers. <laughs> and we didn't last long because... Um, <laughs> slowly. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> We didn't last long because uh, I and the other guitarist were the only two members of the band who weren't thrown out of university in their first year for doing no work at all. Um, so I'd got to know Paul very well and then he left but we, we, we kept friends and then um, eventually ended up sort of living in Hackney in the same estate and starting to work together. Yeah, and creating one of the best comedy shows ever. I love the flash show. It was brilliant. Can I just ask before that, before you did write it, you were a painter and decorator for a bit as well, weren't you? Yes, yes. Because um, actually after that first band, I then formed a second band. Uh, in fact, somebody came up to me today. Was that you? Yes. With a couple of old 12-inch um, singles for my band. It was very nostalgic to see them because mine are in story somewhere. I haven't looked at for ages, and you know, the, the era of big vinyl records and picture sleeves was very exciting. Um, yeah, I had a band called The Higsons, and I was a singer in that for, for about six years. Um, never made any money, but the bass player and, and me, when we weren't on tour, we started doing bits of decorating around London. And we actually worked out that if we stuck to the decorating and knocked the band on the head, he could actually make quite a good living. So um, that was one of the reasons that the, the, the band folded. And is it, is it true that you um, ended up decorating 
Was it Stephen Fry's house? Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie, yes, they did that. Packed so random. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't entirely random because it was, it was via Harry Enfield. We'd, um, we'd got to know Harry Enfield at university. He wasn't at our university, but um, uh, a great friend of his was, um, was in, the, in the band with us, actually. Um, so we'd known Harry over the years, and we all lived on this, we were all squatting on the same council estate in Hackney in, in the 80s. And um, Harry was very ambitious and wanted to do TV. Um, he did a lot of live stuff. And then he started, because um, he was one of the few people around at that time who was doing comedy characters on, on stage. Yeah. So he was snapped up by the Spitting Image team to, to do voices for the British politicians on that. Um, and, <laughs> and through that, he got to know all the comedy, comedy world. and. Uh, the same team that did Spitting Image did the Saturday Night Live, which Stephen and Hugh were on and Harry was on. And Paul and I at the time, we were writing little bits and pieces for Harry. Um, and Harry did nick a lot of his characters from Paul. Paul was, it was always been your archetypal funny mate down the pub. Could always make you laugh. Great at doing impersonations and doing voices. This sort of person you can meet someone and then he'd be able to impersonate them straight away. And he would have picked up on the key kind of things. And it could be someone you'd known for a long time, and then he would really pin them down. You'd think, God, yes, they are like that. And I hadn't seen that. He's, he's, it's an extraordinary talent that he has. Harry as well, of course, is brilliant at doing these very strong characters. And, and Harry kept saying to Paul, you know, you really should be a performer and be a writer. And, and Paul... Paul came to me and said, look, Harry really wants me to write for him, but I don't know how to do it. But you've got a word processor. I, I had the very early Amstrad did you? word processor. Yes. Did anyone else here have the old Amstrad? Yeah. That made that man so much money? I mean, what a clunky old thing that was with the green lettering on the screen. And everything had to be done with floppy disks. In and out, in and out. Paul never quite got his head around the mechanics of it. So I had a word processor and he didn't. So he said, well, let's try writing together. And it worked really well. We, we really enjoyed it. And because we were coming from such completely different directions, it worked fantastically well. It's like a marriage. There's no point if you're both the same. You've both got to do what the other person can't do. And Paul has this very instinctive, as I say, approach to comedy. And, you know, when we're writing, he'll come in and say, well, I've got this character and he'll spout some stuff on and do a voice and a character and, and I come at it from much more of a sort of cerebral structural point of view of thinking okay that's a good idea we can put that together with that and turn that into a story and we could if they were this type of person we like that so I, I, I'm doing a lot more of that kind of structure I would always be the one sitting at the, yeah. at the computer and, and obviously you were performed as well uh, you know did you know Swiss Tony and like it, so you did the, well, the, when, well well, Paul and I never, we never did any, we never did the stand-up circuit. We never did. Um, we we started as writers, and and Harry always wanted Paul to perform. Yeah. And was always saying, and so when he did uh, the Harry Enfield show, Harry Enfield sketch show, um, Harry Enfield television program, obviously Paul did start to do a lot. Of I never finished the Hugh Stephen Fry and Hugh. Oh yeah, no. How did you go on? Oh, so so then what happened? <laughs> um, no, so Harry did know Stephen and Hugh, and uh, and Paul and I were working 
he was working as a plasterer and I was working as a decorator and doing kind of small building type stuff. And so we worked a lot together. And, and, and Stephen and Hugh had done that classic thing on leaving university. They'd bought a big house with two other friends. It was the only way of affording it. And they needed it doing up. And Harry said, oh, well, Paul and, Paul and Charlie can do that. So we did. So we would go around there and we would work and we would try and do sort of funny voices and routines while we were working in the hope that Stephen or Hugh would say, oh, you, you're really funny, you fellows. We must get you on the television. Um, and eventually we did, which was great. And um, Stephen and Hugh quite quickly earned a lot, enough money to, to move on. And... By the time they came to sell it, Paul and I were working in regularly in TV and we were able to buy it off them. Oh, wow! <laughs> what happened to it? Did you then sell it? No, we, we sold it to the Mighty Bush. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had. I wish it had become this comedy kind of, house. This house, yeah, with a big yeah. blue plaque. Yeah, we totally have a blue It should have a blue plaque anyway. No, we, we, <laughs> we, we bought it with um, an old friend of Paul's who worked in the city. And he's still there by himself in this huge house. Where is it? It's in Dalston, which um, yeah. in 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 kind of East London, which was pretty funky when, when we were there. But now it's, it's, it's like everywhere in London, it's gone way up and on. Yeah, I love that. It's fascinating. <laughs> I love the idea of you all just like being mates as well, because to me, you're like you you're listing comedy heroes of mine, and amazing, and, and just to think you're all knocking about together and squatting in a council estate and everything is just phenomenal but clearly that you kind of creatively that really helped you all being together and yeah you know in the same place at the same time and you know it's so much of what, what any career you're in is, is to do with luck of who you meet yeah who you bump into and that and, and that for me is the main main reason to go to university is to get out of your own little world and meet new people and between them can go on and do amazing things, which was why it, I, 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 it was so distressing with the, the COVID and lockdown of so many poor students mm. going to university and, and being stuck in their room doing it all online and not really getting that, that major benefit of being there, which was, uh, I thought was really sad. Yeah. So when was the point when you stopped painting and decorating and then, you know, focused solely on your... Well, we the, obviously the, the 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 first thing that Paul and I wrote for TV was writing Stavros for, for Harry. Uh, <laughs> it was a voice that Paul did first, the, the the Cockney Greek, which Harry then nicked, became Stavros. We started writing that with with Harry, and then we developed loads of money. I mean, because when Paul and I were working, we would often sort of pretend to be. Pretend to be working class builders. <laughs> oh, it was fun. Um, and we do all that stuff. Uh, and, and, and so together with Harry, we developed that into, into the character. Loads of the thing that, that, that kind of brought it all and crystallised it was um, some friends of ours, big, big football fans, were travelling. Um, I think they must be travelling to an international match and they were on the ferry. And they said there was um, a bunch of Geordie supporters, and there were a bunch of Chelsea supporters from London. And the Chelsea supporters from London had big wads of cash, and they were waving it at the Geordies, going, "Look at that! <laughs> You've never seen that before, have you? Look at that! Loads of money!" 
And we thought that was just fantastic yeah. as a way of, 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 of pinning down this, this character. I thought you were going to say Julio Giorgio came from that as well. <laughs> Where did that one come from? Just Out of Paul's mind. Yeah. Now, we, we were talking about this before. I mean, Paul is brilliant at doing those characters who speak gibberish. Um, but you sort of know what they're talking about. So, you know, you've got Julio Giorgio, you've got Ronnie Birkin. Yeah, that's what I mean, so. Uh, type of poisonous monkey. <laughs> uh, and you know, and you kind of know what he's talking about. He's telling these stories through his character. He does a couple more, but I can't remember who they are now. Um, but yeah, so he, he loves doing those types. And, and as I say, he just loves doing any kind of character work and impersonation and that stuff. Yeah. So then when you were, um, you were obviously doing the comedy, were you still writing? Is that when you were also doing your writing, like the novels? And... Yeah, because we, so we started writing for Saturday Live, doing Stavros, and then when we did loads of money, that just absolutely exploded. And people, commissioners started hiring us to write pilots and, and, and whatever, and, and comedy stuff. Um, but I was always right through that period. I was, I was, I was writing. My my first novel, so it's published novel, was called King of the Ants, and it was about a guy who was living on a council estate in Hackney and working as a as a decorator. Write <laughs> <laughs> what you know. Um, but then he kills several people. That's the bit I made up. <laughs> uh, so you tell us. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, so I was I was doing the books through then, but you know slowly the TV work was getting bigger, and and making more money. And I, I, I hit a point I had to make a choice, um, and it was round about writing the fourth book, uh, getting rid of Mr. Kitchen was, and I also that was also when my second boy was born, so obviously family was taking up a lot of time and commitment and. The Fast Show, we were starting to do The Fast Show, and I just didn't have, I just didn't have the, the time and the, and the brain space and the concentration to do that and, and write another novel. I, I fully intended to, to write another novel, and Richard, my um, editor, the one I was sitting next to on, on Friday, um, after getting rid of Mr. Kitchen came out, he, he would ring me like every few weeks and say, well, got another one, Charlie, another one to go. I said, not quite, I'm a bit busy on this, but yeah, with some ideas. And it came once every six months he'd get in touch, and once a year he'd get in touch, and then um, eventually he stopped. He stopped calling. So, uh, but then I'm, uh, just before lockdown, in fact, I met him at a, at a literary do, and he was still with the same publisher. And... I said to him, you know what, Richard, I think I've actually finally got an idea after 25 years. Would you still be interested? And luckily, he, he said yes. So Was he joking at lunch? <laughs> yeah, we've had both been drinking. That is the key to success. Yeah. Uh, but yes, no, I, I just love writing. And, you know, so I had been, yeah, writing all through that, that time. Yeah. I'm going to open it out to um, our audience now to take some questions as well. So anyway, yeah, I've got a hand, several hands straight up there. So if you just think we're going to get a mic to you, or you just... Yeah, here's one coming your way. Probably start with you in a minute. Yeah. Well, maybe not. 
Do you know that's that thing now, isn't it? That zooms. You're on mute. Hello, Charlie. Hi. <laughs> it's 40 years since conspiracy came out. Do you ever think of getting the band back together and then writing about murdering one of them? <laughs> what a great idea. Uh, yes, that, that was a reference to one of the singles I had out in my band, The Higgs is Good Conspiracy. The, the, the catchphrase for that song, the chorus, was Who Stole My Bongos? <laughs> uh, and in fact, it was about conspiracy theories because it goes through all these conspiracy theories, and, and it ends up with saying, "I have proof it was the CIA." Um, so it wasn't a love song. Uh, no, I mean it was a it was a fantastic thing to do as a young man, um, and and you know when when we started, you know, with Paul in '77, you know, if you were at university and you wanted to ask about on stage and impress your mates and try and get off with girls, you'd form a band. Um, Harry was that bit much younger than us, so when he was at university he had the alternative option, because he's not as sexy as me and just wouldn't have worked. Um, he had the alternative option of doing alternative comedy, so he, he formed a, a double act. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was great fun. And, and a huge number of comedians who really wish they had been in, in bands. Some of them did, Ricky Gervais, for instance, uh, same time as us. Uh, and there's a lot of crime writers also wish yeah. they were in rock and And some of them now, uh, yes, have got a proper crime writing uh, dad rock band. <laughs> so would you do it again? No. <laughs> Look at me. You can get away with it if you Mick Jagger. Uh, no, I mean, people do occasionally say, oh, it'd be great to see you again. I say, no, it wouldn't. <laughs> we're, we're, we're all very old. Um, and it's a young, you know, it's a young person's thing. Uh, but, I, you know, I loved, I loved doing it. And touring the world and getting free beer is, is a perfect thing to do as a young person. Um, but, I, but I won't be bothering anyone else again with that. And my, my, my central problem was I was never a very good singer. I could entertain an audience, and I was quite a good frontman. Um, but my singing skills were minimal. It was more sort of slightly musical shouting. Um, There's quite so a few people doing well out with that. The, well, moment, the, the problem is you can't move on from that. You're stuck at a certain type of music at a certain, certain level. My, my second boy, Jim, is, is, is a singer in a band. It was the one thing he loved doing from when he was tiny. Uh, he just wasn't academic at all. And and he had proper singing lessons, and he could sing really beautifully. And his band was doing pretty well, actually. So um, I don't want to embarrass him <laughs> by, by being his support act. <laughs> What's his band called? They're called Koala, K-A-W-A-L-A. Oh, they're very good. There, there was a question behind... Uh, yeah, there's one at the back. Yeah, sorry. Do you want to... Lovely. Hello, it's um, an honour to be in the presence of somebody who has played James Bond. Um, although you played James Bond in an episode of Miss Marple. Um, I just wondered if you could talk about your love affair of James Bond and how you got yes. to write yourself into the most iconic role, sort of, in history. Yes, well, that was, that was very meta, as, as we're supposed to call it these days. Yes, I mean, when, uh, in, in the early noughties, the, the, the double O's. Um, 
I uh, I was I was actually wanting to to spend a bit more time at home and not do TV shows back to back because it's long hours and you tend to not see much of your family. Um, and I wanted to write some kind of action adventure thing that my boys would, would like reading. And I was approached completely out of the blue by um, the Ian Fleming estate. Uh, and in fact, what had happened is my editor, who I'd worked with, brilliant editor called Kate Jones, um, on my crime books, had ended up working for the Fleming estate, trying to revitalise the, the literary side of it, to remind people that it started with Ian Fleming and, and they were wanting to get some new adult continuation books going, which Sebastian Folks did the f first one then. Um, but they wanted to do the, some uh, ones for younger readers because Alec, Anthony Horowitz had done so well with his Alex Ryder books, which he freely admitted were um, inspired by James Bond. <laughs> down to the fact that he's called Alex Ryder, with the implication being that he is the um, grandson of Honey Ryder, which is Ursula Andrews in Doctor No. Um, so, 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 yeah, you know, and they said, they said, would I be interested in writing a series of young James Bond books? And I said, yes, of course I would. It was, the, it was a dream job, you know. I mean, I'd grown up with James Bond first film I remember going to see in the cinema was, was Thunderball. And I can still vividly remember the whole experience and how exciting it was. Um, and in the 60s, James Bond was so absolutely massive, it's quite uh, hard to grasp. Um, and so the idea that I could sit down and, and write the name's Bond, James Bond, <laughs> and be officially you know, this is the real James Bond. It's not like somebody's like James Bond or James Bond's nephew. This is James Bond. And, you know, I got to meet the members of, of Ian Fleming's family um, and, and became part of the Bond family, which was, which was, which was really exciting. Um, but having done a few of them, I, I thought, I don't want to be stuck writing somebody else's character forever. Um, Publishers would have loved me to, the filming estate would have loved me to, but I, I knew if I if I didn't get out soon enough, I'd be I'd be stuck. So I, I moved on, and then um, and then a few years later, I was approached by the the team that were making Miss Marple, and they said they wanted to do this uh, episode of Caribbean Mystery, which is the only time that Miss Marple leaves England and goes abroad. She might as well have stayed in England. She goes to a hotel and that's all the local colour you get. But, um, yes, her nephew sends her off on a holiday to recuperate somewhere warm. And they said that what they were trying to do at that stage with Miss Marple is they liked to try and set it in a specific time and, if possible, bring in a character from the real world into her world. And they said, you know, this is the 50s, she goes to the Caribbean, she could meet Ian Fleming which is why they came to me to write this episode. So, so again, that was, that was a lot of fun and exciting to write such an iconic character. Um, and f interestingly enough, in an, in an early story she wrote in the 20s, there is a, a detective figure called James Bond. Um, because, uh, but, but Fleming always says he got the character the name from... He, was, he loved wildlife and animals and birds particularly, and 
he had a book by an American ornithologist called James Bond, called Birds of the West Indies, on his shelf in his house in Jamaica, in Goldeneye. And he always said he just wanted a very blunt, simple name for his character. He, 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 was, he was trying to get away from the sort of Lord Peter Whimsies <laughs> of this world. And he just looked up and James Bond and thought, yes, that's perfect, it's like a, a punch. So I said, okay, great, how about at this hotel where Miss Marple's staying, uh, Ian Fleming turns up to see a lecture on ornithology being given by James Bond. And he sits next to Miss Marple and says, oh, I'm, my name's Ian Fleming and I'm working on this character, but I haven't got a name for him yet. <laughs> uh, and to, to make it even more meta, the, the, and what was, you know, making TV, doing any kind of filming, is incredibly stressful. Uh, particularly if you've written it and you're then involved in it, because everything just goes wrong from the moment you start filming. You're fighting the weather, you're fighting, the time is running out, your money is running out. Your actors are getting things wrong and you're having to do it again. Your special effects aren't working. And you're constantly thinking, oh, we had this great scene and it's, it's, it's sort of slowly collapsing. We've got to take this out and shore that bit up. And... But they went off to film this show in South Africa. Um, and I was at home. And I'd get these messages like, it hasn't stopped raining since we got it. <laughs> and I'm thinking, that's fine. I'm at home, I don't have to worry about this. I'll wait, when you're finished, I'll watch it. Because a lot of my other stuff, I've, I've also produced what, 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 what I write, so I am foolishly, perhaps, always kind of in charge. But this was it's like a holiday. I think, great, they pay me to write it, they go away and make it, they come back, they know what they do. But then they said, you know what would be a lot of fun? Is if you played James Bond. And I thought, well, actually, I can't turn that down. <laughs> so they flew me out to South Africa and I had a trailer and the tradition on, on sets is you don't put the actor's name on the trailer, on the door you put the character so they said so James Bond wow. <laughs> on my door uh, and, and there was so yeah, so then I turn up and I get to do, say uh, uh, hi, I'm here to give a talk on the birds of the West Indies um, my name is Bond James Bond. <laughs> At which point you cut to me and Fleming going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and it was pouring with rain. It, I'd written this whole sequence where they're all outside on the veranda watching an outdoor slideshow. And it was chucking it down. And they rigged up all these kind of plastic. Uh, plastic roofing with poles to try and. and, it, and which, which at one point collapsed, just missing. Um, Miss Marple and Anthony Cher, <laughs> who were sitting there and I was thinking, crash down next to So um, it was all slightly hysterical, but, but yes, that was my, my, my chance to play James Bond. What a Bond. brilliant story as well. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, I've got another question there. Probably got about eight minutes left, so we'll get a few Mike, more Mike's working. Um, obviously, the fast show was brilliant. Um, obviously. Obviously. If anybody who hasn't seen it, you know, you please see it. It's still brilliant. Um, what, which was your favourite character that you wrote? Um, and also, different, which was the favourite one to play? Well, uh, there were so many wonderful characters. Um, 
I mean, Romy Birkin is one of my, my favourite characters, so I think Paul did that so beautifully. And, as I say, managed to spin so much out of so few actual words. Um, so we, you know, Paul and I, would, we would get together and we would make a list of interesting phrases that might poke through, and, and we'd write them on an idiot board. So when we were filming, I'd sit in the armchair opposite him with the board, with these phrases, so he could kind of go off on a flat, blah, 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 when he was run out of stuff, he'd look at the board and, uh, and read one of the lines. So, so I have very, very fond memories of that. And, you know, and, and I, I've always loved working with Paul. Obviously, I'm very fond of the Ted and Ralph characters. Um, because Paul and I were actually working together. He always claims he was bored to tears. Because he just had to stand there like that. <laughs> and occasionally go... I wouldn't really know about that. Well, I was pontificating all over the place. But, you know, I loved doing those characters. And, and, and that was the first character I played where, when I looked at it back, I thought, actually, that feels like a, a real person, like a real thing. It's not me kind of acting and being a part. So I did love doing that. Um, Swiss Tony, I obviously loved doing. Um, and uh, Bob Mortimer used to write all the filthy lines. This was Tony. I put in all the other stuff to try and make it a character, but then he just sent me a list of filth. <laughs> he is kind of, how he's managed to reinvent himself as cuddly Uncle Bob. <laughs> he is a grubby man. Uh, uh, yes, and um, but the one that I enjoyed performing the most was Johnny the Painter. Um, uh, and that I co-wrote with a guy called Brendan O'Casey, who turned out to be the grandson of the Irish playwright Sean O'Casey, but he was just this uh, strange, interesting guy who lived on a farm in, in Cornwall, and he used to send us these really weird sketches, but he had a great knack for writing these weird poetic lines, which is what Johnny comes out with when he kicks off. And that was huge fun to do with, with Arabella Weir, who's a very old friend of mine. Um, and she was a great stooge in those sketches, and, and, and she made that character very, very real and, and sympathetic. Um, and we could, we would never rehearse what happened when Johnny kicked off, because I didn't really know what I was going to do. I just <laughs> made sure that the props guys, I said, give me lots of stuff I can throw around and break. Uh, so I, whenever I kicked, my my challenge was always to try and make Arabella crack. And make her laugh. You can see her flinching occasionally because she <laughs> thinks I'm about to hit her with something heavy. Um, and I only managed it once, which was because I managed, I actually managed to come up with my own line for Johnny once. Uh, we, were, we were there and um, they always gave us picnic stuff, there's more stuff to throw around. And I said, could we have a couple of pork pies? And. Um, <laughs> And they were there, and I was renting, and I suddenly had an idea, and I thought, okay, I'll try this. <laughs> so I grabbed two of these pork pies, and I went up to Arabella and said, My eyes! <laughs> My eyes are pies! <laughs> and yours are lies! <laughs> and I, I got her. <laughs> oh my God, it sounds like a right laugh. <laughs> Uh, we've 
Do you watch Paul and uh, Bob doing Gone Fishing, by the way? Oh, yes. Isn't it brilliant? It's lovely. It's mm. lovely. I actually went up for their Christmas special last year. I went up and we did a bit where they meet Bob Fleming on the riverbank fishing. <laughs> and it was great fun, but the, um, the BBC said they had to cut it out. Oh! Because of Covid. They said it's disrespectful of, of anyone who met a friend uh, because yeah. of the coughing. But I don't know. Yeah. Might eventually surf, resurface. Yeah, and the unseen, yeah. unseen bits of the show. Yeah. You said you've got three sons and that they um, almost inspired you to, to start writing again. Was there a moment when you thought, I need books for these boys and I need to think of an idea that will inspire me and how did you get that idea? Well, um, as I say, it was, it was, the idea was brought to me by, by the Fleming estate. I mean, I had been trying to think of something like James Bond that would, I could put in all that stuff that I loved as a boy and that, that, that Lay loved um, as a boy. And, um, and so, you know, as soon as they started talking to me about the young James Bond, I saw the idea, the book, I was talking earlier about having to have that idea like the book is like okay great and yeah young james bond is enough but I, I almost had the whole plot of the book come to me in one burning incident i just put i'll put in everything that i as i say that i liked and that, and that my boys yeah. like what would you have done if you'd had girls well <laughs> modesty blaze <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I have put, you know, there are tough girls in the books, and when I was doing schools events, you know, girls would love reading the books, and, you know, they would sometimes say, could you write um, a female James Bond book? And I said, well, why, you know, you make that your ambition, you, you should write that. Um, I don't know, I mean, you know, I grew up, I, I had three brothers, no sisters. Um, my wife had two brothers, no sisters. Um, I've got three boys, no girls. Women are a mystery to me. <laughs> Brilliant. Right. Yeah, I think we should wrap things up. So, Edmund, can you just do a bit of one of your characters, just to give everyone a little bit of a yeah, it's, uh, well, it, it, it's hard if you haven't got anything rehearsed. Who else is going to do it for you? <laughs> well, <coughs> oh, it's been... Great <coughs> pleasure talking to you <coughs> about <coughs> about <coughs> Oh that's got it. Thank you for listening to Hit Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.